Matthew 6, verse 5 through 13, okay. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who's unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they'll be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Move the mic. Well, good morning. The mic is loud in my ear. Um, I'm pumped to be back with people. Golly, this is great. Yeah, clap. We can clap. I will pay somebody if they just shout me down this morning. I'll just, I'll give you, I'll buy you coffee or whatever. Um, I'm just so pumped to have some audience participation. Uh, Kayla actually told me beforehand, don't tell them that you are excited for them to laugh at your jokes because that's arrogant. So I'm not going to say that. Um, But uh, I am really excited. My name's Cam. If I haven't met you, I'd love to. Online community would love to meet you. Hit me on the email, cam.michael at athletesinaction.org. Really excited though for this morning. We have been in a series uh, on the Lord's Prayer. Uh, basically going through how Jesus taught us to pray, Uh, continuing to be fascinated by all the things that the disciples could have asked Jesus uh, to do. They said, Jesus, would you teach us to pray? Not teach us to cast out demons, not teach us uh, how to even live right. They said, teach us to pray. So we've been going through how Jesus taught us to pray. And a couple weeks ago, we started with our Father, that we address God primarily in the Scriptures as Father, that He's our Father in heaven. And then last week, we talked about uh, how it would be your name. And we talked about um, what it meant to contemplate with God and to contemplate the name of God. Is it cutting out on me? I'm good? All right. Um, and this morning, we're going to carry on into the next verse, which says, Your kingdom come. Three words that I think are some of the center uh, of the thesis statement of what it means to follow Jesus in the world today. Your kingdom come. So let's pray and we'll get into it. Father, we are thankful for your presence this morning. We're thankful uh, for the gift of prayer that uh, you hear us this morning. uh, Not because we're good, not because we have it together, uh, but because of Jesus. So we come to you as sons and daughters this morning. Um, asking that you would speak to us, asking that you would uh, illuminate your word, open up our hearts uh, to see and to sense your presence this morning. Uh, I have nothing new to say that nobody hasn't said before, Um, so we don't need more information or more knowledge. We just need to genuinely encounter you and your presence. So we invite you, Holy Spirit, to come and be with us this morning and to be in our midst. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, well, I started to really follow Jesus when I was in college. Um, I had some good friends who I went to their youth group and stuff growing up, but I really had no idea, thought I was a pretty good person, uh, but really began to understand who Jesus was when I was in college, just through some, some friends who invited me to some things, and uh, before I knew it, I started to get a grand picture 
of who Jesus was. And I remember somebody explained uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 21 to me. And they said that uh, he who knew no sin became my sin so that I might become the righteousness of God. And that like wrecked me. Uh, I, I was so full of shame and guilt and like a whole life where I didn't feel like I could measure up. And in a moment, I started to realize that Jesus, I understood the great exchange of what Jesus did on the cross that he, he became my sin, all the shame and all the guilt and all the condemnation that I felt, that he became that on, this, on the cross. And, and in a moment, I appeared before God like I was Jesus, and I became righteous. And, and, and I really, it, it changed my whole life. I started to, like, really love Jesus. I started to really, like, read my Bible. I started to do all of the different Christian things. I, like, I started to listen to Christian rap. Like, it, it changed everything. Um, but then a couple of things happened. Um, one, I, I was still a college basketball player. Uh, trying to kind of lowball my way through a PE degree, uh, and, and nothing really within my day-to-day -day had changed at all, right? Like, I was still going to class, unwillingly, uh, going to practice and doing all kinds of things. Uh, I knew Jesus had died for me, and it was supposed to change my life, but, but my day-to-day -day really hadn't changed. Like, I kind of thought, what am, what am I supposed to do now? I'm supposed to really work really hard, get buckets so the local newspaper will interview me, and I'll just say, man, glory to God, he died on the cross for my sins, and that was it. Like, that was kind of what I thought the purpose was. It, it, there was just this gap. I didn't really understand it. And at the same time, I started to read my Bible. And somebody told me, hey, you should really start in the Gospels. Um, look at the life of Jesus. Look at the words of Jesus. And uh, I realized that Jesus said this phrase over and over and over again. He talked about the kingdom of God, which just didn't make sense to me. And it was the first thing he said. He, he came on the scene and said, uh, Jesus went into Galilee and proclaimed the gospel of God. The time is here, he said. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And that didn't make any sense to me. I was like, what is, the, what is the kingdom of God? Why is he talking about it again and again and again? And it kind of felt like I popped into a movie like 20 minutes late, and then I left 20 minutes early. Like I, like I, I kind of came onto the scene and I realized like, okay, th these people are in trouble. They need to be rescued. And I could identify who the hero of the story was, but I didn't really have the full context of what was happening in the movie. I didn't know how it started or how we got here. And at the same time, I had no idea how it was going to end or what even the result of the ending was going to be. And in the same way, I think a lot of us, we, we realize that, well, I'm, I'm hurting. I need to be rescued. People need to be rescued. We, we, we clearly know that Jesus is the hero of the story, but we lack the context of the beginning. And then we also lack where we're going and how it's going to end. Like, I don't really know how we got here, and I know we're going to go to heaven someday, but I don't really even know what that's like. But sounds great. Sounds better than here. And it's impossible to understand the kingdom of God without the context of the grand narrative of the scriptures. We won't know the role that we're meant to play. We won't know the bigger picture or the script. We'll miss the ins and the outs that make it deep and beautiful and powerful and true. So what is the kingdom of God? Well, we see the first picture of the kingdom of God on page one of the Bible, right? The Bible begins not just with a bunch of sinners uh, running around in need of a Savior, but it begins with a good and perfect God who lacks nothing at all, creating everything out of the overflow of who he is. We see in creation everything is perfect. Nothing's out of order. Nothing's out of place. God makes man and woman in his own image, in his own likeness. He gives them authority to rule and to reign and to be the managers or stewards of his good creation. They have perfect relationships, perfect relationship with God. There's no hiding. He knows them fully. He walks with them. He talks with them. He, he, uh, he, he's in full, perfect, clear communication. They have a perfect relationship. They have a perfect relationship with themselves. 
they feel no fear or anxiety. They, they have no fear of the future or the past. Uh, they're full of peace and full of joy. They have perfect relationships with one another. It says that they're naked and unashamed. There's no fear. There's no hiding. Uh, they just are who they are. They're fully known and fully loved by the people next to them. There's no injustice. There's no oppression. They have an equal playing field for everyone in the story. They even have a perfect relationship with creation. They don't litter. They work the ground with joy. There's no earthquakes, tornadoes, the tomatoes. They come up right on time, right in season, every time. The creation is perfect. I know nothing about gardening, but it sounds great. Awesome. They lived in what the Hebrew people called shalom, where everything internally and externally is in perfect harmony and perfect peace. And this is the fullness of the kingdom of God. Life under the rule of God, in the presence of God, with the full presence of God. I'm going to say that again just because it's really, really important. This is the kingdom of God. Life under the rule and the reign of God with the fullness of the presence of God. But we know the story, right? Adam and Eve, God's first created beings, they're deceived by Satan into believing that they can find happiness outside of God, outside of their good creator, God, and things spiral out of control from there. With this, the line of communication between God and his people, it's broken. And sin and suffering and injustice and pain and all of the fear and anxiety and everything that we experience comes rushing into the story. The shalom in the garden is broken. And the rest of the biblical narrative is about getting back to life in the kingdom of God. From the Ten Commandments, which were the principles to live under God's rule and reign, to the cloud that followed the Israelites by day and the fire by night, to the temple which hosted God's presence. All these things pointing forward to a future Messiah who would come to restore God's people and to usher in the kingdom of God. The story is about getting back to life under the rule of God, back in the presence of God. And this is where Jesus comes breaking onto the scene. In Mark 1, he says, the time is here. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So Jesus' audacious claim, his first statement, is that life with God is available. That life with God is here. His, his central overarching message was what he called the kingdom of of God, the long-awaited age of peace and justice and healing for humanity and the cosmos itself was finally breaking through in his life. Lisa Sharon Harper says that the kingdom of God is the restoration of shalom. And this is what Jesus came to do, to take everything that is wrong and disordered and out of place and make it right again through his very own life. And it's what he does. He teaches about the kingdom of God using all kinds of parables, right? He flips the cultural idols like money and sex and power uh, all on their head and teaches them that to live life in the kingdom of God isn't to accumulate power or to accumulate things, but to, but to give and to serve and to love and to bless others. He teaches that to be high and mighty and exalted is actually to be small and humble. He teaches an upside-down, backwards, paradoxical type of kingdom that is so counterculture that it rubbed everyone the wrong way. And even more than he taught about the kingdom of God, he himself embodied and demonstrated the kingdom of God. He himself gave sight to the blind. Uh, he raises people from death to life. He restores hearing. He grows out legs for people. He casts out demons in darkness, in which he says this, but if I drive out a demon by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. 
All of this bringing order to the chaos, making things that are broken and wrong and out of place right again. J.I. Packard says, one might say that Jesus is the kingdom of God in a person. And the kingdom life that Jesus so embodied was so counter every other kingdom that for the sake of their kingdom, he was put to death on a cross as a perfect sacrifice for humans. This is the stuff I knew, right? He rose from the dead, conquering evil and death, ascended into heaven, and then he sent his spirit to be with his people, promising that he would come again to make all things new, to restore again to shalom in perfection, in its fullness. And I think a common misconception for us is that we, we just die and we'll, then we go to heaven. <laughs> and that's kind of it, right? Which, which is true, right? Like when, when, we, when, we, when we die, when we breathe our last breath, we will immediately, in that moment, because of the perfect death and perfect resurrection of Jesus, we will step into the presence of God. But that's not it. There's just a waiting time there until Jesus will return to renew everything here. Right? We tend to think that, that, somebody, uh, that someday Jesus is going to come scoop us all out of here and just leave the earth to burn, but that's actually not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that someday Jesus will come back here to renew and to restore earth, that the kingdom of God, life under the rule of God, under the reign of God, with the fullness of the presence of God will come here, and we will rule with God again like we were made to in the beginning. So this is super important to understand our role now. Because the mission of the church is to participate in bringing about the renewal of all things, to bring about the kingdom of God here and now. Uh, Dallas Willard was, was famous for having this sign above his wall that said, uh, eternity is now in session. And that's what Jesus' message is. It's, it's that eternity isn't someday out there, but eternity and eternal life begins now. It starts here. Life in the kingdom of God is available and accessible to us now. So even in this moment, when we have a people group or different people groups crying out for justice and righteousness, quite frankly, it doesn't matter if we're just going to all get vaped up to heaven someday anyways. But it's of the utmost importance if we are participating with God right now for the renewal of all things. And at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, uh, he, he steps into the synagogue he un- unwinds the scroll and he reads these words. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, and to set the oppressed free. Then he said, Today, right now, in me, this scripture is fulfilled. And this is the kingdom of God. It's good news to the poor. It's freedom for the prisoners. It's sight for the blind. And it's justice for the oppressed. So our charge as the people of God is to bring about the kingdom of God. We are meant to be agents of God's kingdom and the renewal of all things. And even our mission as this church, as Trinity Community Church, is to practice the way of Jesus together for the renewal of all things. That is why we are here. That is why the church exists, is to participate in the renewal of all things. And there tends to be a pattern of how this happens um, kind of throughout all of church history. And it usually starts in individuals with a personal type of renewal where the kingdom of God begins begins to become a reality in us. And that leads to a corporate renewal. 
And when I say corporate renewal, I mean renewal within a church body, within a city, within a country, within what, what people might even call revival, right? It's, it's what starts in us, the kingdom of God in us, and then the kingdom of God through us. That personal renewal tends to lead to some kind of congregational city or corporate renewal. So I want to say a word on each, on, on personal renewal and then on corporate renewal. Um, so on personal renewal. Probably like half the meetings I have, uh, talk to people, chop it up, we sit down, get coffee, lunch, whatever, um, before I finally, you know, get spiritual on them. You have to at some point. I'm like, hey, bro, so you know why we're here, right? Like, we're not just here to hang out. So uh, how you doing spiritually? <laughs> Got to ask you. That's uh, what I get paid to do. Um, but more times than not, I'll get a similar answer, right? And mo- more times than not, it'll be, ah, you know, man, I'm busy, not bad, but busy, uh, tired. Uh, and if they're like really Christian, you can tell they'll say phrases like, man, just feeling real stagnant right now, uh, feeling a little distant, a little dry. Uh, but more times than not, that's the answer we get. And, and more times than not, that's how we feel, right? C.S. Lewis says this, it, it, it does not matter how small the sins are, provided their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from light and into the nothing. He says, murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, the soft underfoot without sudden turnings, without milestones, and without signposts. So one of our greatest temptations in this cultural moment and in our lives is to live a distracted life. It's to be caught up with good things, maybe not even necessarily sinful things, but to miss the kingdom things. To get caught up even in doing Christian things and even things that we'll, we'll label as kingdom work, but miss true intimacy with God and to miss true intimacy with Jesus and the invitation that he has to have a real life in the kingdom of God, a heart that is transformed by the kingdom of God, not just a life of action and activity in the kingdom of God. That's our, one of our greatest temptations. Uh, the night before Jesus would go to Calvary, he, he sat with his disciples. They had dinner together, a meal. Jesus was always eating. Um, and, and he told them, he sat there and he said, hey, one, one of you guys is going to betray me. And, and Peter, who we know, we've all got the friend like Peter. And if you don't have the friend like Peter, you are Peter. I think I might be Peter. Uh, he, he's the guy that speaks up right away, right? He, he's he's got to say the first thing. And Peter right away is like, not me, Lord. Who is it? Tell me now. And Jesus is like, well, Peter, it's not you, but you are going to deny me like three times before the morning comes. And Peter, in this moment of just like super self-confidence, is like, no, Lord, never. I'll never deny you. And we know the story, right? Like as Jesus is going to the cross, Peter finds himself not with Jesus. He's around a fire in fear, and he has a little girl who asks him, hey, Peter, you're the one with Jesus. And he, he denies. He's like, no, not me. No, that's another guy. That's not whoever. I don't know who you saw, but not me. Um, and he denies, not once, not twice, but three times. And then Peter, a lot like us in our moments of deep shame, in our moments where we feel like we've really failed God, he, he does what most of us do, and he, he, he goes into this, the best thing he can find to just distract himself. And he goes fishing. Not my choice. Definitely not my choice, but good for Peter. He goes fishing. And then... <laughs> Uh, so, so Peter, who, who tried and failed to do things for God, and then he tries to distract himself, again, not with necessarily anything bad. Fishing's not bad. And he finds himself with this radical encounter with Jesus. Jesus shows up to where Peter 
is fishing, where he's actually trying to run away from God and run away from his purpose and run away from these things. And, and Jesus meets him there. And Jesus asks him three questions that are just astounding to me. Right? He asks him the same question three times. He says, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And underneath everything, a personal renewal, a personal renewal is when God re-centers us back to himself. Right? Jesus doesn't meet Peter and say, yeah, man, you really blew it, but I forgive you, okay, because I'm Jesus and I forgive, right? You're forgiven. But let's try to get these new disciplines. Let's get this new habit. Let's get this new system for your life that I think will be better so you won't deny me in the future, like, right? That's not what he says. He, he, he re-centers himself to say, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love Jesus? And that's what personal renewal is underneath everything else. It's rediscovering our first love, our love for Jesus. Not our love for good feelings, not our love for uh, good Christian activity, not our love for even how, uh, for good music, whatever it is. It's it's rediscovering our love for Jesus. It's when everything else isn't good enough anymore. And we find ourselves needing God himself. It's finding ourselves with what some authors would call just a holy discontent. A personal renewal is when, when we can agree with the psalmist who says, your steadfast love, Lord, is better than life. When he's better than everything else that this world has to offer. And the things that you used to find, like a lot of happiness and joy, and all of a sudden it's just not the same because he's better. That's a personal renewal. It's when the Holy Spirit pours the love of God into your heart and makes it a reality in your life. When the Spirit of God testifies with your spirit that you're a child of God, that your identity isn't something you have to try to trick yourself into believing and rehearsing, but the Holy Spirit makes it a reality in your life, that you're not just trying to convince yourself that God's your dad in heaven, but the Holy Spirit makes it the reality in the way that you pray and the way that you live, and it changes everything about you because Jesus is better. That's a personal renewal, and unashamedly, that's what we're after. We are after personal renewal, the kingdom of God ruling and reigning, healing us from the inside out, bringing an inner shalom back to how we were meant to be, not hiding from God, but interacting with him as we were meant to. God's presence, his real felt reality and felt presence, his empowering presence in our life, the personal renewal. But personal renewal tends to lead to a desire for corporate renewal. Um, See, I I used to tend to think that uh, the closer I get to God, the happier I will feel, and the more joyful I will feel, and the less anxiety I will feel, um, which I I think is true, right? Like, totally for that. Jesus came and said, uh, they said the first time they talked about the good news, they said it's good news of great joy. So I think that we should be the happiest people in the universe, right? Because our whole message and everything we believe is good news, of great joy. So I'm, I'm for that. I hate sadness, actually. I do most, most things in my life. I just try to avoid sadness altogether. I don't like it. Um, but I, w- one thing that I'm learning is that I think the closer we get to God, it's not just that we, the, we eliminate the negative feelings, but we start to actually feel the feelings that God feels. And the more I want to feel the things that God feels. The Bible talks about two different types of grief or two different types of sorrow talks about godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. And worldly sorrow will lead us to worldly solutions. Worldly sorrow won't sustain past a couple months a mountaintop experience or some inspirational talks. 
But godly sorrow is when you catch God's heart for a matter. And godly sorrow produces repentance. And repentance is just turning back to God. So godly sorrow will drive us back to God himself to pray. So even right now, right, we, we do not care about the injustice that we see and the systemic racism and systemic oppression that we see because it's trendy or because the world cares about it. We care about it because God cares about it, because it's the opposite of the kingdom of God, because the kingdom of God is of righteousness, peace, and joy. And if people are not experiencing righteousness, peace, and joy, and we see the gap, we feel what God feels. Personal renewal is the only thing that will allow us to feel that. And that's, that's the heart of corporate renewal. So we need to be people not of worldly sorrow, but of godly sorrow because godly sorrow will lead us to pray your kingdom come the fire that fuels the prayer that says your kingdom come now on earth as it is in heaven is godly sorrow Um, and and i've heard it said a lot uh work like it depends on you and then pray like it depends on god which which i'm for i'm for hard work for trying for our best efforts absolutely but i wonder if we've ever actually prayed like it depended on god um like again, J- Jeremy said this last week, but we have the tendency to do good kingdom work and then just really quick ask for God's blessing over it. Um, it, it to be honest, it's easier sometimes to work like it depends on you and then, oh yeah, God, right? <laughs> Forgot, come on, come on in. Um, and I'm not surely, I'm not surely entirely, I'm not surely entirely, is that the phrase? No, no, I'm not sure, I'm not entirely sure. There it is, guys, thank you. <laughs> not entirely sure. <laughs> I'm not entirely sure why that is, uh, but I think it's because it's risky that way. It requires faith. And quite frankly, work is easier and safer than faith, so most of the time I'll just stick to that. But I think another one that we've bought into is the lie that God doesn't really respond to our prayers. That God doesn't really hear or respond or isn't moved by our prayers, and there's always a story that goes behind or goes underneath that doubt. I'm aware of that. There's always something, there's an unanswered prayer or something that you've been begging God for for a long time that it's just felt silent that tends to cultivate that doubt. And Jeremy's going to deal with those, ne- those questions next week. So, <laughs> thanks, bro. Um, but what I do know, uh, I'm going to avoid sadness. Uh, in Exodus 32, M- Moses had just been on the mountain with God, okay? He had been up there for a long time. He'd given him the Ten Commandments, um, right after he had led uh, the, the Hebrew people out of slavery. This was the kids' lesson last week, so we should be re- uh, refreshed and recharged on this one. Um, and what happened, right? I was going to say kids, but kids aren't here. And do you remember? No. It's all right. The people forgot. They don't remember either. Uh, and, and, and they turn away from God, right? They, they come down. They're like, yo, this is, Moses is taking forever up on top of the mountain. I got a solid golden calf guy over here who just can make us something tangible to worship right here really quick. Let's just go with that. That seems easier. And that's what the people do, okay? So they start to worship this golden calf. And God, who is slow to anger, finally has had enough. And, and he has this conversation with Moses, and he says, look, Moses, let's just restart. Let's just wipe them out. You and me, we'll just start afresh. And Moses... He turns to God and he, and he prays. And this is the first picture, I think, of what, what it looks like to pray your kingdom come or to intercede or to contend on behalf of people. He turns to God and he, and, and he prays back to him. He, he, he contends, he intercedes, he, he prays God's own character back to him. 
And he says, God, that's not who you are. You just led these people out of Egypt. Remember your promises to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. You are faithful. You wouldn't do that. And God responds. In fact, the Bible says that God relented, which is as if to say God was going to do something, and then Moses prayed, and he did not do it. And look, I have a, I have a high view of the sovereignty of God. Okay? I think God can do whatever he wants. He will do whatever he wants, however he wants but I also know that God is emotionally moved by the prayers of his people. I want to look at two things really quick uh, that we see Moses praying, your kingdom come. One, he prays according to the nature and the character of God, right? He prays to pray your kingdom come is to pray according to the purposes of God. It's not to try to twist his arm to make him do something that he doesn't already actually want to do. It's to say, Lord, you love mercy. You love justice. You you love people. There are people who don't know you, and I know that your word says that you desire that no soul should perish, so would you just invite them into a relationship with yourself? It's to actually just pray God's own character and nature back to himself, to tell him who he is and to step in accordance to his purposes, and just to ask him, will you do the things that you said you're going to do? It's to hold God to his word. Those are the scary prayers, but those are the prayers that say your kingdom come. It's to pray in according to the nature and the character of God. And two, it's to pray with boldness. It's to move from the inward prayer to contending and interceding on the behalf of others. It's to have a spiritual worldview and to realize that it's not flesh and blood that we're dealing with, but it's forces and principalities and powers that there are real enemies. And it's to lean with dependency on God and to realize the lack of power that we have to build God's kingdom without the king. Casey said last week, uh, or a couple weeks ago, he said it's only, only a son or a daughter can get the king's attention in the middle of the night. And that's the authority that we have in prayer. That we are not just begging, heaping up empty phrases, but it's out of the intimacy with the king that we ask him to bring his kingdom here. Essentially, that's what Moses did. He leveraged his own intimacy with God on behalf of the people. And that's why it's personal renewal, our own intimacy with God, where we catch his heart for things, where we feel his heart for things, and then we beg him to bring his kingdom here now. And I, don't, I think that's one of the things we lack. Is I don't think we have a really good understanding of the authority that we have in prayer. That we have authority that anything, that we come in Jesus' name, that we don't come with our own shame and guilt and inadequacies and fears and failures, but we come in the name of Jesus as a son or daughter. So therefore, we boldly approach the throne of grace in times of mercy. And we are in a time of mercy when we need to come with boldness, asking God to bring his kingdom here now. So I want to end with uh, just an invitation to you uh, personally. What, what is God inviting you into Is it a personal renewal? Is it just moving away from boredom? Is God right now just highlighting in your own spirit the ways that you've just kind of grown numb to the things of the kingdom? Is he asking you to rediscover your first love, to invite and to submit and to surrender to the kingdom of God within you, to invite God to continue to more and more shape your heart into a kingdom heart? Or is he inviting you to be an intercessor, to step into your spiritual authority as someone who contends on behalf of others for the kingdom of God to come here now on earth as it is in heaven. So again, I I just think those are the two invitations and I just want to leave that with you. Is God inviting you to move away from your boredom, 
to a personal renewal? Or is God continuing to break your heart for the things that breaks his and to invite you to be an intercessor with him, to leverage your intimacy with him on behalf of others? Let me pray.